is Swampside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we welcome guest C. Derek Varn for the third edition of The Joy of Sects, our org-by-org trawl through the actually existing left. This is part two of our discussion of the platypus-affiliated society. Just a short editorial note before we get started. The founders of Platypus are Chris Catrone, Spencer Leonard, and Richard Rubin. Also, fuck hurricanes. Well, economism is bad. And sure. I don't want to like, you know, that's a very simple statement, but, and I do have platypusian tendencies myself and that I do actually think dialectics is important, but there's a dialectical tension between the political part of the political economy and the economic part of political economy. And what, say, Marxist humanists and endnotes, which are very different organizations, very different theoretically, kind of both do is focus almost solely on the economistic side of things. I mean, to the point where if you endnotes positive politics is is hard to articulate. Um, I think they're working on it. Endnotes five. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope. But so far, I haven't seen a whole lot of legitimate answers to Pol Pot plus riots plus rustification. So, which I know is unfair, and I'm not. I'm not saying that's a legitimate critique of everything Innote says. I've learned a lot from reading Innote. I thought Bring Out Your Dead, particularly that that uh, theory communist Dob debate was it blew my mind when I first read it. But it's yeah. it's also. <laughs> it's also I'm so far I'm just like but what are you like if if the working class is no there's no possible way for them to be the subject of history what do you got but you're also right though platypus is sort of saying the same thing but saying you know if we work through liberalism we will might have a working class that can do this again but they nothing that they do indicates any relationship to that at all like there's no engagement with with like say normie union leftist that's not what you're yeah. doing at the very least, you'd think that they'd take a look at James Boggs or something and, you know, grapple with just the forces and relations of production affecting politics kind of thing. I know economism is bad, but if you're a Marxist, at the very least, you look to the economic situation to provide the jump off for political possibilities. And as shitty as the positive politics of endnotes might end up actually being, it does try to do that. And I don't see an uh, organization like Platypus, even with its periodization uh, that I quite like of the old left, the new left, and the post-political left. Like, yeah, there's there's some underlying, you know, gears turning on, uh, underneath it that yeah. provide the reasons for the political opportunities that come up. But the thing is, Platypus, like, very purposely does not espouse a political line. Like, that was one thing they kept on kind of bringing up to me was that, no, we don't have, like, any idea of like a program or a points of unity we don't we're not a political organization we're basically just a you know a brain trust and so if you were to <sighs> so basically and they use this as a way to kind of dodge any criticism of right. posi- positions members may hold so if you bring up well you know why did um this guy say this shit about israel that was really fucked up they'll just be like well you know that's it's just platypus doesn't have official political opinion so 
that's just the opinion of one member. But then you kind of notice that everyone else in the group kind of shares the same sort of opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty classic dodge. I guess the, the thing about Platypus is that it proves that the critique of the left itself isn't enough to prevent you from being just a, a functioning as the left in, in that weird, frustrating way of where you should be doing something else if what you believe what you say, but we're kind of at a historical impasse, so we feel like all we can do is do conventions and stuff. Yeah, and I mean, at least Platypus is honest about that. I don't really think that they LARP, but... Combat organization, Donald? Right, that, yeah, that is LARPing, but they are... I think they are all about what they can accomplish, which is basically just doing pure intellectual exercise. But the thing is, there hasn't been great theory coming from Platypus. Like, if you actually read Catron's stuff, I don't really find it impressive at all, to be honest. And I, I get, find a lot of the stuff he has to say in Facebook discussions as just being slogans and just empty, you know, talk. Like, I just, I don't think that for all this, you know, critical dialectical dialogue within the left that platypus has come up with some great answer to you know why are we at this historical impasse well one of the things that i got frustrated with with platypus and they would say that i was a bad materialist when i was in there that was too materialistic they would say i was quasi furibakian um uh was that I would talk to them about uh, they th their histories didn't actually have a whole lot of history in it. They had a whole lot of historiography in it, um, but there wasn't a whole lot of concrete history there. And it's very different. The other thing that got me out, I mean, it's it's this interesting hybrid thing. Um, when I left Platypus, I formed ETI. I met a lot of people. Uh, ETI was a stupid left book group that we should never mention again. Um, and, <laughs> I actually have some questions about that that I've written down here, and it, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> we did all these things, but I was reading to you know Mike McNair, who I don't agree with on everything. I mean, his book Revolutionary Strategy. There's a couple of points where I'm like, no, but it was really nice to bite into someone who was actually talking about history when talking about history and not talking about historiography when talking mm. about history. So, you know, we get concrete things mentioned. And the one thing you'll notice in a lot of Platypus's history is there isn't a whole lot of concreteness there. In fact, um, in their own documents, and it's free, it's available to the public, you can actually listen to Moshi Postone critique Chris Catrone's thesis, this is in the formal documents of the organization, um, on those grounds, that there's not, that there's too much assertion and not enough meat, and there's too much yes, I definitely interpretation. Because when I would talk to them about kind of historical questions, one of the big ones was the, the transition to capitalism. They didn't really have a, um, they had all these weird kind of historicisms that just didn't really Bat, that they couldn't back up with actual historical facts. Like, when you say you have someone like Robert Brenner who does a, you know, who does have real historical empirical stuff that he's working with, and so I kind of challenged some of their claims about bourgeois society and you know the rise of capitalism with some, you know, arguments from Robert Brenner, and they seemed to just, you know, they just kind of came back with the same dogmas, basically. Uh, McNair has some objections to Brenner, but McNair more or less earns his objections because he can—he's conversant in economic history. Well, it seems like that kind of like 
information on those kind of subjects and real theoretical changes, especially in, like history, comes out of you know deep research and engagement with the mm. empirical material at hand. And it doesn't evolve out of like this dialectic between different political groups. Yeah, I have respect for certain Hegelian and Hegelian Marxist traditions, and I don't totally throw out, you know, dialectical, you know, materialist things, but I definitely often note that Hegelianism is a smokescreen for engaging with history. And unfortunately, it becomes this abstraction that can be, uh, you know, towed in whenever you got to get some doublespeak through or something, and I don't know. McNair versus Catron is like Marxism versus... This guy who's about to go from Trot to Neocon. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, the elephant in the room is, is the platypus's reemergence lately has all been off of their similar things. I mean, to even Zizek about Trump. So, mm. um, which the, I actually have taught people in the org, um, and a lot of them thought that the Why Not Trump article was too extreme even for them that the argument was you know it's not like these democratic politicians are gonna help us and yeah i actually saw some of their points but i was just like yeah but that seems weird when i remember reading that article it wasn't really an endorsement of trump i think a lot of people just misread the article based on like the title alone Mm -hmm. why not trump article people defended it by defending trump and it, I think, in a way, platypus yeah. did end up basically becoming pro-Trump. Like at first, it started out as just like, "Why not Trump?" Just put the question out there. And then, next thing you know, they were actually, you know, apparently at their election party in Chicago, they were all like cheering when Trump won the election. So, while I've never been super, super duper high in the organization since I've left. Um, I'm not persona no grata. I mean, they still like actually a lot of members still talk to me, but it's not um, I don't really know what's going on in the same way because the people who I was closest to, with the exception of, say, two or three people in New York who I still talk to and a couple of people in Canada and Montreal who I still talk to, a lot of them have left the organization. And one of the things about Platypus is that it's member list is secret, at least 100 members. I know that because I was in it. But I also have heard that they lost something like between 20 and 30% of that, um, maybe more after the scandal broke. And I have no idea who still, like how large this stuff is now or how, or any of that, or how diverse their people are. I do know that people outside of Chicago are a little softer than the people around Catron immediately. Yeah, because um, the New York that I met were kind different. of the people in Chicago around Catron. And they would always talk about just how he was such a great teacher and what a brilliant guy he was. And it was just kind of cringy. A lot of the people who disagree with Catron were forced out of the organization, some for legitimate reasons, some for not so legitimate reasons. That's what concerns me, I guess, so. is that for the I love the idea of a militant education organization. That sounds like something the left is uniquely equipped to do. A bunch of out of work teachers and humanists and academics, whatever. It never seems to result in a genuine pluralistic conversation. At the very least, you got to do a critique of the sect forum if not getting into some fatalistic selection mechanism of the economy or something. Um, Well, you know, Communist League Tampa is basically that, a kind of, you know, an educational group that's, you know, does a lot of studying and 
education type stuff, you know, trying to answer questions about, you know, what in passe we're at and how we can develop viable revolutionary strategy. But we have, a, you know, politics, whereas platypus doesn't have politics and they're not, you know, responsible to any kind of political line. Right. And, and in, in some ways that's very negative. In, in another way that should, should open the door to being more more pluralistic like because one doesn't have to defend a certain political line and i mean i think it's actually quite impressive that they had a hundred members and chapters internationally and uh, syllab- syllabus documents or you know reading list suggestions that you know i kind of like begrudgingly here and there have dipped into and i'm not sorry like i'm i'm I need to learn more about the Frankfurt School and Postun and Kolowalski. And I, well, I, I actually think that kind of um, the concept of the left article by Kolowalski is actually. I love that. Yeah, I, I think that. that's a good article. And I, um, I recommend that I'm to always into the Frankfurt stuff because to me, a lot of it just becomes too Nietzschean and Heideggerian. But I do. Um, and also, I mean, like I said, some of their. Um, pamphlets that they have you read by the Sparks aren't bad pamphlets. Like one of them is um Lenin in the Vanguard Party, which, you know, has a lot of I disagree with, but it is a good historical summary of, you know, the Leninist argument for the Vanguard Party. You know, even if you disagree with that stuff, it's it, it might be, you know, it's worth getting a crash course in the Sparts that way. I don't know. Well it gives you a whole lot that you wouldn't get otherwise. I mean if you're if you're hanging around people in the ISO, what are you getting? You're getting Trotsky kind of, you're getting Cliff, then you're getting weird shit like Altusser read through Trotskyism and Ugh. everything in the kitchen sink out of Verso. Naomi and- Klein. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a, you know, if you've ever listened to the We to People podcast, you just like what kind of We are many. Yeah, or yeah, we are many, whatever. What kind of <laughs> half-assed conference, like no line at all bullshit that you guys are throwing out. But my, my thing about, or, or what I've learned about organizations that claim not to have a line, they're always lying. Right. You will have more internal diversity in a group that has a line than a group that doesn't. Well, I will say that I, it doesn't appear to me that Platypus is a cult. Now, it could be potentially become a cult, and then, I don't know, they might just be putting on, like, a really good face for when they have outsiders around. But I don't really think it's a cult. It just has certain guru-like tendencies that you get in a lot of different left groups. It's a sect, and it's a weird yeah. sect. Um, but it's not—I mean, like, they didn't shun me when I left. In fact, you know, a lot—I have more— act- acrimonious leavings with with groups that have a much better reputation mm-hmm. and um and you know uh so the, i'll give them that they also if you want to if you if you use their materials and, and even the materials of people they oppose you can learn a lot um um just don't buy into their schemas i mean that that was my big takeaway is like you can expose yourself to all kinds of people i didn't understand trotskyism really until going through that organization and getting a and it made me better able to understand stuff like what mike manera was talking about you know about how the fall of the soviet union really destroyed all that um theoretically that a lot of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense now 
because those debates become just academic. But I wouldn't have ever figured that out just kind of if I'd have like flirted with the ISO for a little while after the stuff with the SPUSA didn't go well and then, you know, maybe join the DSA or something like that. Like I got a good sectarian education and then I rejected it, but at least I got the education. Yeah. That's general problem with a lot of active historics is that they just don't educate their members at all. In fact, they avoid it altogether in order to keep them busy with like useless tasks. Or they just give them pamphlets written by the sect leaders themselves. They do that in Platypus too a little bit, but not to the same degree. So yeah, that was the thing. The one thing on Platypus that did impress me was that they were very they were well educated and articulate it was just that a lot of the stuff they were saying was just kind of so obviously just Catron thought basically it kind of fucks me up a little bit that you know they're so stuck on these schemas when they're called platypus and they have a really cute origin story about frederick angles discovering you know the platypus in literature and as i alluded to before he thought it was a fraud by English taxidermists because he was a good Hegelian idealist and he was expecting, you know, nature to have a reason in it. And then lo and behold, here's this fucking abomination. And where the hell did that come from? Why does this exist? And um, I think I think uh, the moral of the story for platypus is that the left is the platypus or something. But I actually felt like it was more of a good parable for like something like the Soviet Union. And if you've ever read van der Linden's uh, book on Western Marxism in the Soviet Union, he kind of concludes at the end that um, Marxism and its kind of mode of production analysis dis- doesn't prepare us to analyze something like the Soviet Union. And <sighs> I'm not against systemization. I want better systemization. And when I see these, I mean, it's it's hard to call it vulgar because, you know, there's leftists from Yale speaking in $5 words. But at the end of the day, it is a vulgar systemization. <laughs> it's, it's not what it promises to be. And it wouldn't be able to identify a, a real platypus. <laughs> Did I just lose everyone there? Does that make sense? No, 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 no yeah. The whole thing that the platy- like the Soviet Union is the platypus like kind of blew my mind a little bit because I was thinking about, you know, what what you know what would Ingalls think of the Soviet Union, you know? Yeah, I remember being around community college Trotskyists and you know chewing on that. Oh, was it state capitalism? Was it a degenerated worker state? Was it bureaucratic collectivism? And then you know eventually I sort of realized that wow, this is the kind of question that there's so little agreement on. And it would seem like an important thing that uh, it makes Marxism, and especially like the Leninist kind of Marxism, uh, seem like uh, what uh, Karl Popper's uh, student, Lakatosh, would call a degenerated research program. Well, part of the problem is like we're not all analyzing the same data sets because when it comes to the Soviet Union, it's a question of who do you believe. 
You know, when you're when you're debating with somebody about it, and they start citing Grover Fur, it makes it very difficult to have yeah. like a, a conversation yeah. about the same entity. And a lot of the analysis that was done of the Soviet Union was done at a time in which most people in the West didn't really know what the Soviet Union didn't have much information on the Soviet Union, like the Marxist humanist analysis of the Soviet Union original state capitalism theories, mostly based on like guesses. And like reading Lenin, right? But it's yeah. it's like a hundred years later, and I, I'm bracketing out the Grover Fur people because they don't fucking count. And I'm talking about people that are more or less, you know, trying to do a good faith historical analysis. But it depends yeah. on what your historiography is again. I mean, like this is an important point. So if I'm looking at it from a value theory perspective, I would say that. Probably there are elements of the Soviet Union that are state capitalist because of the specific ways of blah, 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 blah. But that's not going to ask, answer a political question for you. And if I look at it from a political way, I'm right. like, well, there was obviously workers' elements in the majority of this party that overthrew this and then blah, 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 blah. And so a part of it's not just that we're working with different data, but that our interpretive framework for what we're considering the crucial part of the question is different. Right. Um, Th that's the yeah. that's the thing that bothers me, and that's what when I'm bringing up the degenerating research program of Marxism. Well, how does Platypus really? How what is what does pl the Platypus take on the USSR? They don't think, have one. I, I don't actually, know. it actually it's not explicitly stated. This is one of the things, and if it is, I never got high enough in its initiary compendium to find you, out. You never got to that level. Yeah, but I mean, to be fair, the one of the things about Platypus is that, like, that you're not told what to believe pretty much ever, but you're told what to believe. I, I, I know that sounds strange. No one ever told me we believe this. Like, there's never a moment where someone says, you must agree with Chris. There's like but a natural group think to it. Right. But if you don't agree with Chris, the likelihood you'll stay in the organization is pretty, or even if you do agree, I mean, like, I actually find some of what Chris Cretron says when he's not talking about a schema to be very insightful at times. Other times, I think it's nuts. But, you know, it, you just couldn't stay in the organization because the, the, the general atmosphere feels hostile to you. You don't feel like you can do much. Um, and since there's, there is no, like, activist part of that at all, so if you're cut out from the conversation, what are you going to do? It's pretty much nothing. Um, if you're not a student or a professor, you don't really have a whole lot to do in it either. Um, that's another thing that's that, like it's very hard to to engage in platypus if you're not near a university. Wow. You know what what they want you to do is give out platypus reviews for free on a university campus. Where if you're not a student or a professor, you can't really do that. Um. Mm. So those are all completely different limitations to that form. I mean, if you're not um, – and it does affect things directly, and they don't deal with it. But I did – I learned a lot because the one thing – they would never tell you if it was a generated worker state or state capitalist. Or my favorite thing about the state capitalist theory is no one entirely agrees on what is the key criterion because what – what Marxist humanists call state capitalist and what Cliffites call state capitalist and what Berdigas call state capitalist isn't actually the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Like what I can tell, the Cliffites version of state capitalism is just like sort of weird Keynesianism, war Keynesianism. Like that's how they describe like state capitalism. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, we could have a whole other episode about course, the USSR and well, how to the, interpret it. I could talk about that for you know, well, four hours. Well, the, 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 the point is just is just to bring up how systemization is sort of in crisis in Marxism in a way that points to uh, a worm in the core somewhere and that um, what Platypus is doing has a sort of paleo aspect to it where it wants to go back to Leninism, back to the good part of the Frankfurt School, but also back to some second international imperialism or whatever without ever really, you know, breaking into the 21st century in whatever way we would want. But and... they're not the only people to do that. I mean, like, no. in some ways, like, Duvet, uh, Dov, Duvet, anyone Duvet, know? I think. Okay. Um, in some ways, Duvet is doing that, too, because, like, you know, Bolsheviks are cool until 1921. Are, and you get, you get these periodization numbers, like there's a magic year beyond which you do not go. And for, for the platypus, it's 1917. And I actually think one of the reasons why they're now entering socialist parties is literally just because it's 2017. <laughs> um, Numerology. <laughs> but I mean, there is, like, there, there, is some, there are some ways that periodization is a good thing because there are certain points where you know sure. people people make turns or organizations make turns that are obviously bad like you know the SPD voting for war credit or, or yeah like the vote for war credits for instance like the but yeah. it, the question is just how much can you extrapolate from that and some groups like especially like the ICC just extrapolate way too much oh yeah no periodization is just an abstraction from history that can be used as an analytical tool to construct a narrative about history but if you let the, um, the periodization essentially be this, the answer to every question, then it simply just becomes like a tautology. You know, like kind of um, how, you know, the ICC used decadence theory. It's, it's Yeah, that like, was, was coming to mind. Yeah. Or, um, I don't know, I think Platypus, one of their periodizations is like Bonapartism. Yeah. He kind of um, controlled when I heard him speak, he kind of gave a speech about how after 1917, capitalism transformed into, like, Bonapartism. And so I think that's one of um, his big critiques. Hmm. Yeah, that's a huge part, actually. Is Like, everybody gets accused of being a Bonapartist if you're dealing with Catron. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a big thing. Um. And it took me a while to get my head around exactly what was being claimed for that, too. So, wait, he sees it as a distinct phase of world capitalism? Yes. So, instead of imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism, Bonapartism is that not highest but next stage but of capitalism? It, he, would, he wouldn't say highest. He would say it, would, it, it is the degenerative form of capitalism after 1917. It is actually, in some ways, uh, conceptually parallel, I mean, they would ne neither side would ever admit this, but to the real subsumption arguments that communization theorists make. When I was going back to the Alfhaben versus like theory communist kind of debates around decadence, it, yeah, I mean, it kind of hits me that these periodization debates just keep coming up, that there is something to them. I mentioned James Boggs before because that's another, like, you know, that sort of grounds the, um, 
communization, periodization and stuff. And the more I was thinking about what a lot of the communizers are saying, you could kind of move decadence to like, I don't know, 1970s or something <laughs> and and have like a, you know, oh, well, you know, that's when politics became exhaustively bourgeois right around then, you know? Yeah, that's when, you know, all working class organs are inherently subsumed into the state, you know, after this date. Right. And I wonder, is there some way to evade this uh, this entirely must we wade into the muck and perform this historiographical systematization? It's it seems like what McNair calls theory overkill in his response to Catrone. On the one hand, on the other hand, you know there are some real like practical stuff that comes out of, or at least that forms the conclusions of these arguments. That I suspect is the whole reason we're having the arguments. I've spent yeah, a lot of time wrapping my mind around it, and I haven't got a lot to show for it. I think another historical argument they made that was suspect to me was that it was basically um, the struggle for the eight-hour day that began real subsumption of capital to labor, in which it was just, I think that was an argument, was that like... Labor to capital, you mean? Yeah, that it was um, when the proletariat started struggling for the eight-hour day, that was kind of like the phase transition to when capital was now real subsumption. Because they do deal with that category, but I, I just, you know, you can see real subsumption in, you know, English workshops far before then. So it's it's very, um, I just, I didn't buy it. But it seems to be another example where the idea, the historical idea doesn't really go with historical fact. Yeah, it's this idea of looking at these things as a distinct historical phase that I think this is EndNote's critique of theory communist. And I, I don't know how far, much farther they get beyond that either, because in their masterwork on the, on the workers' movement, A History of Separation, they represent like the periodization, their periodization and ours. I'm not sure ultimately how different it gets. Well, I was going to, one thing, one more thing. I want to make sure we talk about platypus is the whole question of platypus and imperialism. Because yeah. Catrone left um, the Spartacus League, I think, over the Spartacus League giving military support to um, Iraq and the Gulf War. Yeah. I think that was um, the position. And like so, they, they refused to condemn, or or they like were like whole hog, like anti-imp for Saddam? Um, I've... They were whole hog anti but it was it was military thing. Because like what tribes do is they have military support, which is kind of like we don't agree with their politics, and we agree their politics are bad and reactionary, but they're objectively against U.S. imperialism, so we support their military front basically. Because so that, that's what the Sparts said about ISIS, right? <laughs> yes, and um, and they have like the idea of political support, which is like. We politically support this group, blah, blah, blah. And so they kind of like try to, you know, straddle the line there and get away with supporting kind of reactionary anti imperialism. But in a way, Platypus does the exact opposite. And they seem, you know, they reject, you know, this vulgar anti imperialism. But at the same time, they seem to think that, like, Bern, they have kind of like Bernstein's position on imperialism, basically, where imperialism furthers bourgeois society and furthers capitalism and so therefore you know it 
there's is we basically kind of like critically supported like the position on Iraq was they refused to um you know call for U.S. troops out of Iraq because they compared it to um if the cops leave a neighborhood gangs will take over so if the U.S. leaves Iraq you know basically Islamist terrorists will take over and so we have to you know support the U.S. and Iraq to rebuild bourgeois society and so. This kind of reminds me of Kautsky's theory of ultra-imperialism, sort of. I don't know. Yes, actually, it is very similar to Kautsky's ultra-imperialism because they basically see um, imperialism as like an imperialism of free trade, I guess. They see it kind of as um, basically the uh, mechanism through which capitalism is able to kind of expand and enforce free trade throughout the world. And free trade is progressive because... It's competitive capitalism, and I don't know. I, I still don't that's fully understand the plot take on imperialism because they're very like dodgy about it. I think they have to. So, but is it somewhere between the Bernstein developmentalist take and the ultra imperialist take? So, like, if you had the spectrum from Lenin to Lenin on the left, Kowski in the middle, Bernstein on the right, although it's important to remember Bernstein actually voted against the war and all that other stuff. So. Well, uh, Bernstein did support colonialism. Like, that was one of the first revisionist no, debates. Yeah, he did. But people don't really seem to know all of what these people, because I'll hear people think that Bernstein voted with the right end of the SPD on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the common people voted for war credits when that's just not even true. Uh, I believe both. I I've believe had people both of argue. Those I, I thought both of those things. Like, yeah, I actually not, had people tell me that explicitly before I entered the platypus that Kotsky that Kotsky voted for war credits and that Bernstein was was helping the right wing uh pay day uh, on World War One, and neither one of those things was true. So, um, and I got that clarified very quickly in platypus because they do make you know your your international history, um, but. Anyway, the, the, my, my point there is the position they take is somewhere between those two. It's actually probably to the right of Kowski, but not as ex, they won't explicitly endorse Bernsteinism, but they'll do stuff like the rational kernel of blah, uh. you know, and they'll they'll cite Marx's early writings on India and ignore the later writings. And they hated when I brought up Zurich, the Marxist letter to Zurich. like that was like. That was what me bringing it up all the time was always like, well, Derek, you just read it wrong, Marx. But <laughs> you know, and we never read Capital either, like ever, 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 ever. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, that explains a lot because they really didn't seem to understand a lot of the categories of Capital. But uh, like, um, so the difference between early Marx on India and later Marx is early Marx, he kind of sees colonialism in a progressive light. And he sees that as basically um, preparing the um, the foundations for capitalism to take hold in India. But then he says after this, the real revolution will happen. And so he basically sees colonialism as preparing, you know, the possibilities for revolution by bringing capitalism, which sounds like a platypus types um, position on imperialism. But then later on, Marx actually starts supporting the anti-imperialist movement in India. And start seeing anti-imperialism as a actually the more progressive thing. You know, he supported Irish Natlib, you know, with the right of nations to independence who are colonized, and said that was the more progressive option. And 
you know, that's what the position that Kotsky and Lennon would take on. So there's, you know, Marx's thoughts develop. The one thing that you'll notice about Platt, you've noticed about a lot of groups, is they'll try to insist that Marx really didn't ever change his mind. Um, and you can only mm-hmm. do that selectively read marks like which yes. is not to say there isn't a consistency to all of it i don't believe in that altusarian like epistemic turn crap yeah it's bullshit but but there is a difference between early marks and late marks there's yep. late marks if you just read the economic text it seems way more cynical if you read the political text it's, it's a little bit different but um like if you just re- if you read capital and in, in the manifesto you're going to be confused, I think. Yeah. Whereas, like, Marx's views on all kinds of things changed. His views on colonialism changed. His views on certain parts of political economy changed. His views on the state changed. Yeah, bourgeois state, uh, labor versus labor power. And I think kind of what was consistent was his kind of humanism within Marx. So that's why I would reject the Althusserian break. Uh, McNair has some, like... I. I forget, it's at the end of one of his videos, he makes some comments on Platypus, and his, it's a great talk, he goes into, like, some things I've always thought about, uh, switches and, and BDSM and weird weird ways of dealing with, you know, problematic parts of human nature and stuff, whatever. Uh, but then at the end, he gets into um, what concerns him about Platypus's line on, you know, fulfilling the promise of the bourgeois revolutions, is that bourgeois liberty always had a flip side. Bourgeois humanism always had an excluded group of humans. Um, that liberty was a sort of zero-sum extraction of, of their freedoms in this bourgeois way, and it doesn't seem like Platypus is sufficiently uh, dialectic to their enlightenment in that respect. It is weird for a group that based themselves so much on Frankfurt School that the dialectic of the Enlightenment actually doesn't come up very much. I guess it's also kind of weird that they operate exclusively on schools considering their anti-Marcuse crusade. Well, it's a workerism without any workers involved or even wanted to be involved. (laughs) Yeah, I've noticed that um, they're really in the kind of like Adolf Reed's critique of identity politics. But Adolf Reed mm. has a positive politics, which is this kind of workerism. But Platypus doesn't even do the workerism. They just do the critique of identity politics. Do they know yeah. workerism has no basis? Like, they seem historically nauseous enough to be aware. No, they, they are aware that workerism has no basis. That's their break with Reed um, explicitly. Mm. But they accept all of his critiques of identity politics. But, you know, like I, I my, my little phrase is woke, wokeism and workerism pretty much are the same error. They're just different sides of it. So, you know, you don't you don't fix yeah. a problem by just flipping to the other side. Yeah, exactly. But so that seems to be just a big problem with us in general. It's a contrarian. It just seems like yeah. style contrarianism where it's like, well, most of the left has this opinion. But we, you know, have this super advanced analysis that leads us to have the opposite opinion. And we're actually correct. And it's just, you know, for example, with the Iraq war, with Trump, with um, a lot of identity stuff, it seems very much try to be a contrarian, almost, and edgy. That is how Spiked got to where it was, or where it is. Yeah. 
Like, and platypus doesn't appear to be as far down that road, but I could. I... Well, for listeners who don't know about what spiked is, is basically there is a Trotskyist group called the Revolutionary Communist Party, not the Vacanites, but Trotskyist group. And they kind of um, they in had Britain, some right? really yeah in Britain they had weird some weird positions like they thought the national minor strike should be put to a national referendum, like which is just stupid as fuck. But um, <laughs> that's terrible. Kautsky would shit on that. Yeah, well, yeah, and but they ended up um, basically they started a journal called Living Marxism and they started questioning Marxism more and more, and eventually came to the position that. There is no like possibility for communist revolution anymore, and so what we need to do is protect like the gains that we have made from bourgeois liberty, and so they basically become libertarians, and the whole um they their whole project becomes you know this kind of contrarian libertarian extremism with occasional like references to Marx and whatnot but very much, you know, on the libertarian side of things. Like, we're really against environmentalism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they, feminism. Yeah, they're big into the culture wars stuff in general. They see it as, like, a weird bureaucratization of society through, like, psychology and that sort of thing. Although, to be... Like, honest about spike they actually have a left wing that platypus doesn't have like because nagel um and james hartfield and a couple of other people who write okay analysis of stuff actually do come out of spiked um mm. fascinating spiked she has ties yeah oh wow that makes, that's that makes sense that's i'm fucking, not surprised but, um, actually yeah, James Hartfield, even though he is, like, the left-wing Marxist guy in spite, he still has, like, really cringy views on a lot of things. Yeah, but, well, like, I mean, I, basically, I kind of see Platypus as a U.S. version of Spiked, but not as far gone, basically. Yeah, they don't, th- their right is not that far right yet. Like, they're not, they're not arguing against gay marriage. Well, well really? I say that. Um, Chris but, is gay, though. I don't think they would do that simply because Chris is gay. Well, they might do it because Chris is gay, because Chris has is gonna, might have some edge lord like, well, we shouldn't be asking for subsumption to marriage. I, he's <laughs> married. Brendan, right? Brendan is Brendan um, O'Neill is gay too. <laughs> wow, is that how Just they get so away with this? Shit? Um, yeah, but the thing is, like. Um, the platypus adopted Nagel. Um, I remember uh, Nair, Yasmin Nair's position whenever gay marriage came up. I remember like the day that the, the Obama came out of it, everybody was right. where everybody threw up the Nair, um, the Yasmin Nair greater than symbol as opposed to the equal symbol. So basically, um, her position was that um, gay marriage was just in kind of incorporating gays in the capitalist society. And so it wasn't actually real progress for gay liberation. Yeah, but that doesn't make yeah. actually that much sense from the platypus standpoint. No, it doesn't. That's totally exactly <laughs> because, like, it, it it makes more sense that you would support gay marriage as like a, a progressive democratic demand that you know capitalism has allowed for by breaking down the family structure. No, Donald, you're thinking right. you're thinking of the invasion of Iraq. <laughs> 
Oh man. But to be completely honest, I, I, I do think, I don't think Chris or um, Spencer Leonard actually did endorse on Nair's position. It was more the membership and the membership does sometimes have a more edgy than thou attitude. Mm. And they, they, like I used to get in fights with uh, a couple of members I'm not going to name where like they would actually adopt like almost right wing rhetoric about how the left is just psychologically sick in the head and always, always in bad faith. If you call yourself a leftist and why would anyone? Yeah. Want to do that? Um, one of their members, while I was talking to the, her, she basically defended like covering up sexual abuse and organizations. Whoa. And um, she also um, said that she, you know, actually isn't for the socialization of the means of production. So you have people who have extremely, like, right-wing views within Platypus. Yeah, I suppose they're hosting the conversation. I mean, it, it is funny because, um, you know, some of the stuff that... Uh... Oh, how do I how do I express this? Some of the stuff that comes out... Um, uh, and um, and Ra- and Ross Wolf, you know, is notoriously Ross Wolf. But um, he took he took he took more left wing lines on a couple of things like like that uh, than a lot of people in the org, because Ross and a lot of other people were constantly outing, actually. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the reasons for the the six that what began a chain of schisms when I left was that uh, internally there was a debate on outing the ISO sex scandals um, in 2012 and 2013 after the SWP sex scandals got outed. Whether or not we should ourselves participate in that outing or not. Oh wow. Now I don't remember how widespread or what position was held in the organization, but I do know. Um, one of the members of the organization was pretty much asked, asked, encouraged to leave because they were too involved in "quote unquote" scandal hunting in other orgs, and usually they were outing sec- like rape scandals and stuff, and uh, other particularly, <sighs> particularly cl- cliffite orgs. Um, I know that Contrano wow. defended um, defended Trump's "grab him by the pussy" comment by saying that Trump is just. You know, embracing sexual freedom and allowing her to express his sexual aggressiveness. Well, right, right. Well, Catron would say, "I refuse to condemn his sexual assertiveness." Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It's like, that, I don't, wow, I want to be anti-freedom. That's what they they like. If, a lot of things that <sighs> things they don't like, they just are very like it's anti-freedom. Yeah, like, but if you're if you're declaring freedom. if you're declaring war on the left. Okay. One of the most despicable things that the left does is exploit young people. I mean that in the Marxian sense of using their labor. I mean that non-Marxian sense of like, you know, using their dreams as fuel. And one of the even most disgusting things they do is take that to a sexual level. And there, there are some serious red flags, not the Stalingrad kind, when you have a guru defending sexual yeah. assault. Like, they physically and mentally rape you. They're a combat organization to destroy the left, and they're not going to crack down. They're not going to actually take down the left that it's most, like, deranged and fucked up. Yeah, I don't want to scandal monger too much, but I do remember that being a debate. And and you will notice that they never—that 
Ross would out people for it, and some other people who, again, I'm not going to name because I sort of insulted them earlier, without people for it. But the actual org wouldn't touch it. But one of the charges against Ross that brought all that up was that we were engaging in the left-wing blogosphere. The left-wing blogosphere is barbaric. We should only be doing platypus. And because we're spreading lefty gossip. And... Um, Huh. They must really class. not like the weekly worker then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, it doesn't really make sense from like a opportunist standpoint. Like it's cliff heights. You said it. You said yourself, Ron, that they're basically their rivals. Yeah, r- rivals and enemies. Cliff heights. Mm. They don't even consider. They they don't consider cliff heights uh, Trotskyists. Yeah. So it would be a great opportunity for them. To just point it out, and you know, you got rapists in your miss. Like, even even then, the you know, it wouldn't even be a political move, really. But I think that's just it shows how this um con- this kind of obsession with negation and contrarianism basically leads you down a bad path. It does. It's not. It doesn't lead you towards something consistent. This is something uh, that I have. A problem with imminent critique quite a bit for because I like the idea of imminent critique. It's sort of like you don't have to de- de- declare a bunch of you know questionable principles. You can take the principles of the society and kind of tease out where things are uh, contradictory or the principles of a subculture like the left and tease out the contradictions. I think there's something useful about that. But without a positive systemization, that is, you know, kind of a little gung ho and good faith, and you know, knowing it's probably going to be wrong. Like, you end up with a lot of theoretical fragments that don't hold together, and and practice that doesn't really gel with the theory. And I don't know. I don't know if there's any way of like cleansing one of of these inconsistencies. So but, I think. We can conclude that platypus is just a bunch of theoretical figments that don't all fit together. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily disagree, even though I still like a few of them. And there is, I will, and their slight defense, there are more diverse opinions within the organization, but those people don't talk very much. They'll mm. talk to me privately, but I never see them on left forums. I didn't see them make big voices within the organization because if you were a kind of person who would make a lot of uh, noise within the organization, you generally didn't stay in. And I don't mean like they voted, like I didn't get kicked out. I just didn't see the purpose in staying in. I felt, you know, I I felt excluded. And, but it's not that they wouldn't kick people out. They definitely did. Um, And in fact, it feels like there was probably a major, you know, a major booting a year, but Hmm. you know, there you go. And, and I guess the major thing to take away from them is actually is what I think uh, EndNotes kind of got a whiff of this is the, and like some people tangential to EndNotes uh, did the communist research cluster stuff where they created like three readers. They had plans to do more, but there was some acrimonious stuff that prevented it. And they like, really, they, really like putting together like a, like a binder of like how do you how do you how does that fall apart? It points to how difficult it is to pull off something, some kind of international kind of coordinated just reading through some stuff together as as like the left. Like 
that's the context in which I encountered EndNotes that I was sort of like impressed is uh, Aaron Beninev. After I listened to his um, critique of Platypus, and then I went to a reading group for this Communist Research Cluster Volume 1 uh, thing about like left communism. And I felt like that model was really effective. It was something that the left can do. It was, you know, I was impressed. And more or less, I got the impression that they were sort of inspired by platypus. And I guess if I can say a positive thing about platypus consistently, it's that. This drive to create an international group of people reading through some of the same stuff together, trying to think things through together. The fact that it goes so disastrously should tell us a lot, but I hope can form the grist for something more constructive in the future. Yeah, and I think to kind of end on everything, that is what Platypus is good at, is doing collective education and learning, you know, because they do have a good syllabus and they do educate their members. It's just to what end? So what is there left to say? If we are correct at all about the self-undermining nature of capitalist class relations, then we can expect something like the following. In spite of the weakness of class liberty, exchange relations will continue to break down. Workers will find themselves put at risk. They will find their lives interrupted or derailed. They will be forced to fight, to organize creatively, to struggle within their conditions against those conditions. Establishing direct access to means of existence outside of the wage and outside of the money form in a multiplicity of different ways will be the only real solution to this problem. But that is not to say that workers will not try many other solutions. For example, they will organize as specific class fractions arrayed against one another, um, etc. Communism will only become possible when a large fraction of the working class breaks with prevailing forms of struggle and tries instead to destroy the very foundations of capitalist class relations, to really unify uh, humanity outside of the constraints of those relations. What that would look like is more or less impossible for us to imagine today, except in its like merest inklings, since it will depend on the particular forms of organization that the class creates and the particular impasses that the class confronts in the course of a pro proliferating struggle. That is not to say that world revolution is inevitable. Far from it. It is merely to point out what we might call the minimal conditions of its, of its success. The conditions for revolution will emerge not from within the internal development of the left, but rather from the development of a historically specific form or historically specific forms of class struggle. The limits to class struggle, class belonging as an external constraint, are a direct expression of the form of the class relation today in the era of its breakdown. These limits are not a matter, not merely a matter of bad ideas. They're not a matter of bad ideas. They're not a matter of bad ideas. Attempts to renew the left absent an intensification of class struggle are bound to fail. All that project can achieve, it seems, is, a, is to attract students for a few years to do reading groups and then move on with their lives. No intellectual milieu can survive in the absence of a real movement of the class. <laughs>